I love good preaching, and uh, sometimes it is uh, a real privilege to have a Sunday where instead of being the one preaching, uh, I get to hear a good sermon. This morning was a tremendous encouragement to me. Uh, we're a very blessed congregation. Uh, Bert did a fantastic job, and it was wonderful to get to hear him, but I'm also happy to be back preaching again uh, tonight. I was just talking to uh, Jim Hafer just a minute ago on the way in here, and he mentioned something that uh, it reminded me of a conversation with somebody else that I had earlier in the week talking about some of the songs that we sing, he mentioned some of the, time, some of the old songs, some of the songs that we've sung you know, a thousand times before. It can become easy to, if you know it and you've sung it a thousand times, just to kind of go through the motions of singing the song without actually thinking about and being uh, convicted by the words that you're singing. Um, that's true. That's true with pretty much anything that you do. Earlier in the week, I was having a conversation with someone, and uh, we were talking about the, the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper and how there are some uh, churches that don't do it weekly. They'll do it monthly or uh, annually or biannually, or uh, they'll do it uh, you know, with greater space in between. And sometimes the reason that's given for that is that if you do it every single week, it can become something that just as a part of tradition that you mindlessly go through and it's just something that you do so often. And I would say that there's probably truth in that too. Uh, like I said, anything can. I think if you say prayers every single day, you can get into just a habit of mindlessly saying the same words without thinking about the majesty and the glory of God as you do so, without considering the petition that you're making or some of the pledges that we sometimes make to God in prayers. We can get it to where it just becomes a, a mindless habit. Um, Having said that, that's not a reason to not sing old songs. That's not a reason to not take the Lord's Supper. It's not a reason to not pray daily. It's a reason to be aware of the fact that we can develop habits that uh, if we're not aware of that and if we're not intentional, they'll just become meaningless to us. And so you have to be aware of that and, and not do that. Uh, anything can become like that. Marriages sometimes become like that. You see the same person day after day after day after day, and they no longer seem special to you. Even though you promised that they would be special to you forever, uh, they can just become part of the, you know, the decoration of your house that you see. Uh, you have to be aware that that can happen and to try hard to not allow that to happen. Tonight I want to talk about something that it can become something that we just absolutely mindlessly take for granted day after day after day if we let it. And I think probably a lot of times we do. But if we're intentional and if we're careful and if we train our minds, this thing that we're going to talk about can be a constant, vibrant reminder every single day of the goodness and the glory of God. It can be a call to worship. It's actually foundational to a lot of the worship that we see in ancient Israel, in the book of Psalms, and, uh, and in other places as well. What we're going to talk about is remembering to see the glory of God, remembering to daily see the divine in the creation around us. Um, on Wednesday nights, we've been uh, going through the book of Genesis, and we've spent uh, some, a couple weeks looking at the first few chapters of Genesis that talk about creation and that talk about uh, what God did in Genesis 1, when, you know, let there be light. And, and uh, we talk about all that God did there. Then we talk about the creation of the garden, the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of the animals, and all of the things that God did there. And that's the first two chapters of our Bible. And the ideas and the themes that are laid down there 
they don't stop there. They are picked up over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hard to understand the grand uh, message and beauty of the rest of the Bible without those foundational first few chapters. And one of the things that is central to worship in Israel is remembering that everything that you see around you is created. Everything that exists is either in the category of creator or created. And everything you see around you is in this category, the one created. And anything in that category is not to be worshipped. Everything in this category, which is God, is to be worshipped. God is the one who's the creator of all that there is. And so when we see the creation, we're seeing the very handiwork of God himself. And it's a reminder not to worship that, but it's a reminder of the one who made it. And it's a reminder of the God who loved us enough to make this creation and to create us to be a part of it. And so worship is, uh, is constantly sounding forth from God's creation to remind us to worship the creator. And that appears all through the Bible. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about a couple of things that I hope we can intentionally determine in our lives that when we see these things, they will remind us of the God who created them. And they'll remind us to worship him. They'll remind us of the truth of that God, the power of that God, and the glory of that God. Ultimately, the goodness of that God. If you do go through Genesis 1, one of the things that you'll see is repeatedly, over and over again, in that first creation week, God is going to look at the thing that he made, and he's going to say, it is good. Even before there was a human being that he made in day six, God said over and over again, it is good. The creation that God made is good. And when we see the goodness of creation, it's a mere reflection of the goodness of the God who created it. You can learn about God by looking at creation. In fact, you're expected to. Paul's going to make that point in Romans chapter 1. that Those who, say, didn't have Torah given to them, Gentiles who lived in various places in the world uh, who worshipped idols, they should have known not to do that. They should have known that the idols that they worshipped were not creator. They were in the category of created. And they should have learned a little bit about the one who is the creator by looking at the world around them. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood through the things which he made. It's like you can't see the invisible God, but you can see the stuff that he made, and that should cause us to want to reach out to him and to worship him. And, and so Paul's of the mindset that even people who didn't receive the law at Mount Sinai, they might not have known a lot about this God, but they should have known to worship a God beyond this creation, to worship a creator. And uh, God would make himself known to them in those uh, various ways. So I want to look at uh, Psalm 104. We would talk about how the creation often becomes the foundation of Israelite worship, and we can't do a detailed study of all the places in the Psalms where that happens tonight, but man, it's a lot. Like, read through the Psalms with an eye towards looking at all of the specific mentions of the stuff God created. It's all the way through there, and it's in, it's, I won't say it's in every Psalm, but it'll be in a lot of them. It'll be in probably most of them. Uh, in Psalm 104, is one of those psalms that really focuses on it uh, very heavily. Uh, it focuses on remembering the way the world works, why it works that way, 
and how it works that way and, and who ultimately is responsible for it working that way and then praising him because of it. So it's a psalm of worship and praise to God based on looking at creation. And the structure of it, uh, you can kind of see it as we'll go through. We'll have to go through quickly because I have a couple passages I want to look at tonight. But it walks through Genesis 1. It's like Genesis 1 is written and you have those six days. Here is a prayerful, worshipful, inspired reflection upon that by a poet of ancient Israel who is writing a, a psalm of worship because of what you see there in, in day one. So the first thing you have in day one, or in uh, Genesis 1, you have day one where God says, let there be light. Let's read the first couple verses here. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak and stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. So the first thing that he's going to mention is that God himself is clothed in light. One of the things that's interesting about Psalm or about uh, Genesis 1 is you have uh, the creation of light before you get the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so what, what is that light? And, uh, you know, there's different ideas that are used as exegetes discuss that. But here I think you kind of get the idea. If you're thinking about Psalm 1 as you read, or if you're thinking about Genesis 1 as you read through this, you get the idea that, God himself is the one clothed in light. Uh, he will eventually, in this psalm, get to the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. But right now, he's looking at God himself as the one who clothes himself in light. Day two in Genesis 1 is when God, there's the, the ancient primordial waters, and he lifts them up so that some of them are down here, and those are called the seas, uh, and some are up here, and then the area in between is what he calls the heavens. And so it's the, the making of the heavens. So we're getting the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth, and day two is when God made the heavens. Well, if you look at uh, verse 2 of Psalm 104, the second part of it says, stretching out the heaven like a tent curtain. Uh, that, that's what God did when he made the heavens. Is it's, like we have a, it's like you're in the tabernacle and you're looking up, and that tent curtain is over your head. That's what it's like when you're standing outside looking at the blue sky that God made. You're seeing the curtain that he put over you. He's going to go on and discuss that curtain uh, in the form of like a tabernacle type thing um, as, uh, uh, in the next verses. Verse 3, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. So remember the waters that he brought up. He says he puts the beams up there to keep everything up there. Um, he makes the clouds his chariots. Think about that. The next time you look up and you see one of those clouds on a day that's kind of moving quickly across the sky, think of that as the very chariot of God, as he's making his way, looking through his creation. He makes the clouds his chariot, and he walks on the wings of the wind. Verse 4, he makes the winds his messengers, and flaming fire his ministers. The next time you go outside and you feel the wind blowing, or you see the trees moving as the wind is blowing, think of that as God carrying a message from one part of his creation onto another. It, you know, I as you read through this, clearly it's dripping with poetic literature and, and poetic license and, and all of that. But really what I think you can do is you can stop and you can have reminders of what, in what way can the wind remind me of God? Think of the wind as being his messenger. One thing that's interesting about verse 4, where it says he makes the winds his messengers, there's another way to translate that. Uh, the word winds is the word spirits, and the word messenger is the word angel. Um, and the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 
notices that uh, the, the dual translation possibility there and applies this passage to angels, being uh, angels being his uh, ministering spirits, uh, and, uh, and, and talks about how God uses angels in that way. But going back here, what you're seeing is he's saying, when you see fire, you can think of that as a minister of God. When you see the wind, think of his messages being carried across the sky. When you see clouds moving, think of him riding his chariot. When you see the light, be reminded of his glory and goodness all the way through it. And, and like, if you just stand outside and you notice these things happening, they could all happen at once. And you're just surrounded by reason to remember God and to worship. So that's the first two days of Genesis. You have the heavens and you have the light. And then day three, what does God make? It's the earth. He, there's the water, and he moves it over so that dry land appears. And remember, that's the imagery of Genesis 1. He moves water over, and he calls that area where all the water is collected the sea. And when he does that, the dry land appears, and he calls that earth. All right? Notice the way that's reflected upon and described here, beginning in verse 5. He, laid the found, he established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. So that's like that period before the waters are moved. You have the earth there, but it's covered by sea. Even the mountains are covered. But then verse 7, at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. And the mountains rose and the valleys sank low and the places, uh, to the places which you established for them. When you see mountains and valleys, think of the authority of God. He set them exactly where he wanted to go. And the water's not there. Why? Because when God rebukes, water listens and flees for, 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 for terror of the, the glory of God. It, it's an idea that actually appears quite a bit in the Psalms. Um, if you were to, you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 107, uh, there is a lengthy description of sailors out on the seas when a storm arises, and it says that they end up seeing God's, uh, uh, God's rule over the sea when he quiets the waters and makes them still. That's the same language that's used when Jesus is asleep on the boat with his disciples and the storm is on the sea. And uh, they, uh, they're terrified and they think they're going to die and they call out to Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus rebukes the water and he says, quiet and be still. And at his rebuke, the water obeys. It becomes quiet. It becomes still. And they ask the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, read Psalm 104, and you'll get a pretty good idea of who this is. Uh, that's, the, that's the authority of the God of Israel invested into Jesus himself. Uh, and, and so that's, all of that is going to be reason to praise and to give glory to God. When you see those things, be reminded of who he is. Uh, verse 10 if we're continuing to talk about the earth, um, he talks about the springs and the waters that flow and the rivers that flow between the mountains in verse 10. Verse 11, what those rivers and streams do is they give drink to every beast of the field while donkeys quench their thirst. Uh, besides them, the birds of the heaven dwell. Uh, they lift up their voices among the branches. So if you remember day three in Genesis 1, yeah, the dry land appears. He calls that earth. And then we're also told that it brings forth vegetation on day three. That's where the trees and the, and the plants and all that stuff come. That's all day three stuff. That's where the fruit comes from that people eat and that animals eat. And so he's thinking about when you see birds 
resting in the, uh, the tree branches or nesting in the tree branches, that's a reminder of the God who created a world with even a place for the birds to dwell. And when you see a river, he created a world where you don't even have to go out there to feed the animals that are out there or to give them drink. God has provided that for them. And so you see the provision of God. As you drive through the Smoky Mountain National Park, you see the provision of God for the wildlife everywhere because God cares about his wildlife. Uh, God cares about the animals that he makes. God cares about his good creation. It's a reason to praise him. It's a reason to worship. Um, If you look down at verse uh, 14, he says, He causes the grass to grow for his cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that his uh, face may glisten with oil and food which strengthens man's heart. It's like you look around and you see grapes and you see oil like olives and and you see uh, food that is growing and you recognize that that sustains the animals it also sustains man it makes us glad it makes us healthy it sustains us for another new day that's all the provision of god in verse 16 i love the expression remember day three is where the trees come he says the trees of the lord drink their fill the cedars of lebanon which he planted That expression, the trees of the Lord, or you could say it another way, the Lord's trees. Uh, When you see a tree, it's not your tree. (laughs) That's the Lord's tree. Uh, When you see a thousand trees, you're seeing the Lord's garden. Uh, You're seeing his trees that he planted. And uh, and all of that, again, is a reminder to to praise him. Verse 17, the birds then nest in them. Uh, The stork, um, whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge. And you go through and you see like all of the different animals mentioned and how God has homes for each of them. He provides for them. But then notice verse 19. Day 4 is sun, moon, and stars, right? The greater light, the lesser light, and the stars. Well, you get to verse 19, and then he kind of moves on to that. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows uh, the place of its setting. You appoint darkness, and it becomes dark, in which the beasts of the forest prowl about. The lung, young lions uh, roar after their prey, and they seek their food from God. So, so he says, all right, you've made the sun and the moon, and when you say it's dark darkness comes. You know what you could remember every sunset when darkness comes? God did that. And you know why God did that? Because it's time for you and the daylight animals to go to sleep. And he has the whole creation now going to uh, be turned over to the nighttime animals. And the lions get up and they begin to roar and they seek their food from God. Who feeds the, the lions when the moon is in the sky? God does. They're seeking food from God. And that, that whole vicious life cycle, uh, that's something that could be a reminder of the God who made it all. Uh, verse 22, then we have the, the moon has been up, but now the sun is going to rise in verse 22. When the sun rises, they withdraw, and they lie down in their dens, and man goes forth to his work, and he labors until the evening. It's like there's this cycle where man works and then goes to sleep and then the lion comes out and does its work and then he goes to sleep and then we get up. And, and you have that, the order in the structure of God's world is a reminder of the brilliance and the order of the God that we serve. You can uh, read through this whole psalm and you can see how it's kind of walking through the story of creation all the way there in Genesis, but not necessarily looking backwards at it looking at how 
you can still see that Genesis 1 creation story when you take a hike, when you walk and you see a stroll, when you see the sunset or when you see the sunrise. You can be reminded of all of these things about God, and it gives you reason to rejoice and to worship. Uh, look at verse 31. After, you know, I mean, even right before that, he talks about uh, the, the animals who God takes their breath or their spirit away and they return to the dust. Uh, and, uh, and you see that, that idea of God brought them up out of the dust of the earth in Genesis 2 now. Uh, and then he puts them back there when it's time to die. Uh, but you can uh, look at verse 31. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. What are the works of the Lord that he's been describing? His creation and all of the things that God has done in this creation. You just read through the chapters. There's a hundred things that God is doing day after day after day that you can see that are listed here. And he's saying, and the Lord, let him rejoice in that. God likes the world that he made. God likes the order of it. God likes the purpose that things serve. God likes the rivers and the streams and the mountains and the trees of the Lord. Like all of that is written here. And we get to experience that every day that you walk outside and there's light, you're reminded of the light of the Lord. When you walk outside and feel wind, you're reminded of him carrying his messages from one place of the earth to another. When you walk outside and you see a tree, you're reminded of the tree of the Lord, where the birds that God created can, can rest in its branches. What can be the temptation, as we said earlier, is uh, twofold. One, you appreciate the trees and the mountains and the earth so much that you worship the trees and the mountains and the earth. That becomes a big, a big problem. Let that motivate you to worship God. Don't worship the creation. But the second problem is you feel the wind every day. You see the light every day. The sun rises and the sun sets, the same as it has 100 years in the past and 100 years in the future. And it's like, it's going to happen every day of your life. And you can forget that there's actually a message behind it about who God is and about the fact that he's worthy of praise and glory and, and adoration. Throughout this psalm, we've seen a lot of things. We've seen all kinds of things God created. We've seen the animals. We've seen all of those things. Every one of them is a reminder to praise God. And there are other psalms that actually speak about every one of them itself praises God. Uh, look at Psalm 148 now. Psalm 148, as you draw near the close of the book of Psalms, uh, which, by the way, the final verse in the book of Psalms is, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Uh, the idea is, like, everything that breathes, like, everything, praise God with that breath. Um, it's a universal call to praise. Well, Psalm 148 is going to describe, what does he mean by everything that has breath? Psalm 148 is going to, again, think about creation, and it's not going to so much focus on the fact that we should look at creation and be reminded to praise God. It's going to focus on the fact that all creation does praise God. Uh, look at uh, verse 1. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. We're going to focus at the first half of it on how the heavens praise earth. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This psalm is pretty easily divided up into how the heavens praise the Lord and then how the earth praises the Lord. Uh, so verse 2, we're going to praise him from the heavens and from the heights. Verse 2 says, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, praise him sun and moon, praise him all stars of light. And you might be thinking, well, how in the world does the sun or the moon praise God? Uh, 
One of the things that you'll notice as you read through the Bible, and this happens a lot, in a lot of the poetic uh, wisdom literature, um, you'll see, and not even just there, but by the way, a lot of literature outside of it too, but you'll see that even non-human creation is said over and over again to praise God, uh, to, to bring him glory and to praise God. And uh, you read through that, and then you keep reading, and you get to like some of the narrative, and you realize, who is it that doesn't praise God? Well, the sun and the moon and the stars seem to praise God, according to these verses. If you look at God's creation, it tends to be the ones that he created in his own image are the ones the least likely to actually bring him the glory and the praise that he deserves. Uh, but as you go through here, you could say, well, you know, that's just poetic. It's not literal. Clearly, the sun doesn't actually worship God. But think about the fact that if we're reading through their worship literature, if we're reading through the stuff that they use in their worship and praise to God, and these ideas are all over it, then maybe we shouldn't lessen the idea of non-literal to mean non-important. Maybe we should think, you know what? These ideas are actually foundational to what worshiping and praising God is. Remember these ideas when you do see the sun and when you do see the moon, and they can cause you to join in the chorus. When you hear the birds uh, uh, tweeting and when you hear the sound of the wind blowing and when you hear the sound of a river that's rushing through the trees, let that sound remind you of praise. Uh, the sound that they can make is the sound of worship and join in the chorus because that's something that God has called us to do. Let it remind you to do that. Uh, you keep reading uh, verse 4 as we talk about the way that the heavens praise him. Praise him, highest heavens, all the waters that are above the heavens. Remember, Genesis day two, you know, he moves the waters up. The waters that are above the heavens, praise him. Uh, in, the, uh, in verse five, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he also established them forever and ever. And he made a decree which shall not pass away. All right, so all the stuff in the heavens, Praise God. Whether you're talking about angels, whether you're talking about the sun, whether you're talking about the clouds, whether you're talking about the water that's up there, everything up there, praise God. Then you get to verse 7, and he switches to the earth. Praise the Lord from the earth. And he begins with all the stuff that's in the, uh, like the, the, the waters, all the sea monsters of all the deep. And then fire and hail and snow and storms, stormy winds fulfilling his word. Remember the idea of the wind being a messenger? He says the wind fulfills his word. It's, the wind is likened to the word of God in, in a number of psalms. Um, verse 9, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both men and uh, virgins, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. And here at the end, it all comes together. The heavens praise him, everything on the earth praises him, including like the weather, the cold, the wind, uh, humans, animals, everything praises God. And then the reason why is because his glory is above heaven and earth. Heaven and earth come together and he has lifted up a horn for his people, praise uh, for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to him, praise the Lord. So you read through their worship literature and you'll see a lot about heaven and earth and God's creation of them still existing and enduring today. And that is a call for us 
to join them in the worship and the praise of God. When you see animals, let animals remind you to praise God, because they do, according to Psalm 148. Uh, and you can see God's love and care and provision for them through all the things that he does, according to Psalm 104. There are so many uh, visions in the Bible of what, like, the glorious... Uh, a glorious vision of this world with God is. And, and usually they are like Edenic visions, like in the Garden of Eden, where you had humans and you had animals and you had peace and you had a, a, a universal praise of God. But look at uh, Isaiah 43 in verse 20. This is a picture of uh, the children of Israel returning home from Babylonian captivity. And there's a lot of uh, like Exodus imagery that's being used here. Because if you remember, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Then they were allowed to return home. But the wilderness was miserable. Uh, in the wilderness, they got attacked by snakes. In the wilderness, they, uh, they, well, they sinned against God. So they had to be there 40 years. An entire generation of people died. Uh, in the wilderness, they gave into idolatry. In the wilderness, they did all sorts of terrible. They complained repeatedly over and over against God. In the wilderness, the earth at one point opens up and swallows a Korah. And and those who were following him in a rebellion against Moses. Like in the wilderness, there were plagues. In the wilderness, there was all kinds of horrible stuff. It was a miserable period of 40 years in Israel's history. The way the wilderness is going to be described on the return home from Babylonian exile is much better. Uh, it's not that miserable wilderness experience you had coming out of Exodus. Coming from Babylon, it's going to be uh, a glorious new Exodus. Uh, don't remember the things of old, verse 18. Don't recall call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the, fast. Behold, the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a highway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And then notice verse 20. The beasts of the field will glorify me in jackals and ostriches because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. But notice in that he pictures a beautiful, wonderful wilderness experience. There's a highway there. There's rivers there. You know where they had to get water from the first wilderness? From a rock. Like, if, if you have to go to a rock to get water, you're in a rough place. Uh, God, like, miraculously gave them food from heaven because there wasn't any food. He miraculously gave water from a rock because there wasn't any water. But here, he's saying there's going to be streams. And you know what? Because of that, even the jackals and the ostriches and the beasts... They're all going to glorify me, along with human beings. Uh, the idea is, again, it's a picture, but it's a picture of universal praise. Like, when you see a jackal or an ox, remember, they're only alive because God has given them life. So God must want them to be alive, at least up to this point. And they only have a meal every day because God has provided a meal every day. So God wants them to be able to eat. God's love is seen even in the animals of the world around us, let that be a call to worship and to praise him. Um, in Revelation 5, all the way, as you can see, some of this stuff appears in the New Testament too. But in Revelation 5, there's a picture of uh, worship taking place at the very throne room of God. We, this passage, uh, or this section, was, was uh, read earlier in the lesson this morning. In Revelation 5, you get this picture of heaven. And uh, notice the worship that's taking place there, uh, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 14. In verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, 
around the throne and the living creatures. Remember the, the living creatures for a second. Uh, but And the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. So you have this huge angelic heavenly uh, scene where everyone in the heavens is praising and worshiping God. And here's what they're saying with a loud voice in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and uh, wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then notice verse 13. We've talked about the heavens. Now notice, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You have the angels, you have the elders in their thrones, you have the living creatures, and then you have everything in heaven and on earth, even all the stuff that's in the sea, like everything shouting forth in glory and praise of God. This is a picture of the last verse of Psalm of the book of Psalms, the Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Uh, I don't even know if you can say like the stuff in the sea has breath, but uh, they have gills and they're going to praise God from that. But the idea is that there's a, a picture at least of universal praise taking place. When you see animals, let them at least be a reminder of the praise of God. Let them at least remind you that we have a God who's the creator. He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of all life. And the things that I see around me are not just pointless minutia or stuff to ignore, or stuff that I can get used to and just not think about as I go throughout my day. Let the other life that you see around you remind you of the God of life. The God who has provided for life here on this earth, for humans, certainly, but for all creatures that are living. Like, they're all invited into the praise and the worship of God. Let's make sure that we uh, join them. I told you to remember that phrase, the living creatures, uh, there in chapter 5. So uh, there are these beings that are around the throne of God. And depending on which passage you're looking at, you'll see different words used to describe them. Sometimes you'll see the word cherub or cherubim. Um, if you read like Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll see that. And you'll see this description of them using words like lion and ox and eagle and man. And you're going to see that those are like, it's like all these different parts of different animals put together into one uh, super animal that's there before the throne of God. Uh, but so the word cherubim, at its description, it's going to make you think of, of animals. Um, the word seraphim, uh, or seraph, that's the word snake. Uh, so there's more than one word for snake, and it's not always that word. But for example, the uh, the snakes in the wilderness that came and bit the children of Israel, and then Moses had to make that bronze snake and hold it up, and if they looked at that, even if they got bit, they would live. Uh, those snakes are called seraphim. Uh, that, that's what that word means. And, and they're called fiery snakes because the word also could have the meaning of, a, of something like shiny. But it has the idea of, of like shiny or glowing or fiery serpents and snakes. Um, and so even that word is going to give you the, the image of some sort of, of animal that uh, has been made. But then this word right here in Revelation, it doesn't use the word cherub or seraph or cherubim or seraphim. It just uses the phrase living creatures. At least that's how my Bible translates it. 
But you know another way to translate that? You know how it's translated in other New Testament passages? It's the word animal. Uh, so like uh, the animals that are sacrificed outside the altar in Hebrews chapter 13 and the blood is brought, those are, those are called this. It's like the, the animals that were brought there that were sacrificed uh, at the altar in, in Jerusalem, they're animals and they're called living creatures. Um, and so kind of it's translated different ways depending on what uh, passage you're looking at. But even the depictions of the throne of God that we see, uh, both Old and New Testament, they have at least a, it's a different than any animal I've ever seen before, but a form of animal-type beings that are there at the very throne of God. Uh, and that's why they're woven into the veil at the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. That's why they are there in Eden. And that's why in many of the depictions of the new heavens and the new earth, you'll see the idea of, of animals. The creation of God is something that God, even before he created man, he said it was good. When he looked at the animals, he said it was good. Uh, and I think there's a reason why. And I think that's one of the reasons why we'll see, why you see them in the Bible, like over and over again, in each of these settings and in each of these places. And it's one of the reasons why in a lot of the poetic literature about worship, they are offering up their worship to God also. When you hear an animal making a sound, I don't know what words they're saying, but maybe poetically in your mind, let that think, let that uh, cause you to think of uh, only sound an animal can make is a, is a sound they can make because God has given them life and the ability to make it. Think of it as a sound of praise. Think of it as a reminder so that your whole life, everywhere you go, everything you see, when you see the sun, when you see the, hear the, uh, when you feel the wind, when you see the clouds, when you see a mountain, when you see a river, when uh, you hear uh, the bark of a dog or you see an animal, they can all be reminders of worship and praise. Every sunrise, when God said in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and the light shines in the darkness, what does that remind you of? It's the idea of, of a sunrise. You can let every sunrise remind you of God's original command to let there be light. Um, John chapter 1 introduces Jesus by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things came into being through him, and without him nothing came into being that came into being. Uh, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overpower it. it, it notice a lot of the language there comes from Genesis chapter 1. It's a picture of new creation. It's a picture of, of the light of the world coming back into the world, and the world is in darkness, spiritually speaking. When you get to John 3, you find out that the darkness hated the light because it exposed its deeds. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world a couple of times in John. When you see a sunrise, think of God's original creation. When you, think of the, when you see the sunrise, every day be reminded of the light of the world coming into the world. Remember Jesus at each sunrise. When you see the sunrise, remember the resurrection. One thing the Gospel of John does is it focuses intentionally on uh, the time of day that things happen. And at nighttime, you often have a veil of secrecy or darkness or sometimes even wickedness. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And uh, he does that because he presumably is afraid to be seen with Jesus. Uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, he's introduced with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who was called a secret disciple out of fear. And you come to find out that Nicodemus and Joseph, the, Joseph of Arimathea, they were kind of afraid of perhaps what 
following Jesus publicly would do to their life, to their reputation, to their occupation, to their position. Uh, People were getting kicked out of the synagogue, and so they're following Jesus secretly or at night. When uh, Judas is going to betray Jesus, after Jesus washes his feet, it mentions that he left the room and went out to betray him, and it was night. Uh, When Jesus is arrested in the garden, it is night. But then when Jesus sees the woman at the well, right after Nicodemus at night, he goes to the woman at the well, who is in every way a polar opposite to who he is. The time of that meeting is introduced as being about noon. That's when the sun is shining. Uh, When Jesus is about to heal the blind man in John chapter 9, he introduced it by saying that uh, while it is day, we have to do the works of our Father while it is still daytime, because he is the light of the world. At the resurrection, the sun is rising as uh, darkness is coming to an end and a new day is dawning. You have the light of the world rising up as Jesus is, uh, and his tomb is, is found empty. That stuff matters. And it, ma- it matters so that we, as we walk throughout our day, when we wake up in the morning, when we see the sun beginning to rise and you see that beautiful sunrise all around you, remember that darkness doesn't reign. Remember that God is the one who brought light into darkness. Remember that Jesus brings light into a world of spiritual darkness. Remember that at the resurrection, the sun was rising because there's a new day and a new hope and a new horizon. And the sunrise itself is used as a reminder of all of the ways in which our hope continues to be with the God who clothes himself in light. Light itself is a reminder of who God is and what God has done. We're about to have uh, winter, and even the changing of the seasons uh, is something that is a call to worship and praise God. In Psalm 147, we don't have to turn there now, but there's a a lengthy description of the changing of the seasons uh, and uh, how uh, eventually the winter comes, and it says, and who can stand before his cold? And it's like when you feel that cold air on your skin, Think of who can stand before the God that we serve. Uh, like All of the changes in the weather, the changes in the season, the things that you see, they're reminders of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. And we'll end up with this verse. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen being understood through, that, uh, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We have all around us uh, reminders and evidence and pictures of the goodness and the power and the invisible glory of the God who created it all. Don't mindlessly go through life forgetting to stop and to slow down and to look around you and to feel the wind and to see the light and to look at the trees, and to remember the God who made it all, and to worship and to praise him. That's at the heart of a lot of the passages of worship in ancient Israel, and it's something that we should make sure that we do not take for granted. We might be found to be without excuse. Uh, God's all around us through the things that he made. Remembering him is all around us through the things that he made. Let us see those things and turn our praise and our worship uh, to him. If there's anyone here tonight who would like to uh, come forward, who would like the prayers of the church, who would like to become a Christian tonight, please let that be known and come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.